The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Every now and then I come across a book that is so well titled that I'm taught by the title alone, even without reading the book. Ever come across one of those books? I have a few that that are kind of special to me, though I've never read them. Take, for example, a book by Gary Thomas called Sacred Marriage. And get the subtitle. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? I've never read that book, but I think I've already been taught. What if God designed, and it's a rhetorical question, He did. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than, not instead of, more than to make us happy? We are not accustomed to thinking of marriage like that, but God is. That's what He's up to in marriage. I'm instructed as I think about that title, and I also note that title points us to 1 Corinthians 7, our text for today. Connects us particularly to verses 10 to 16, where, as we recall from last week, Paul is now turning to address issues raised by the church that wrote a letter to him. They've asked him a bunch of different things, and he's going to kind of take them in order. And there's a lot in chapter 7 about marriage and about singleness. But it exists in a, a context, you'll recall, the middle of the chapter, we could look at verse 17 in particular of chapter 7, the context where, where Paul is addressing and, and exhorting the, the Christians to live the life that God called you to, that God has assigned to you. In that context, he comes to marriage and singleness. Because he's, as he says, in verse 7, marriage or the gift of singleness, celibacy, is, is a gift that he gives some one and some the other. And if he's given you that gift, then, then embrace it and walk in it and don't try to illegitimately change it or corrupt it, or turn it. That's the context in which he addresses marriage. And he needs to do that because evidently the Corinthians were thinking that, hey, I'm a new creation, I'm a new creature in Christ. Everything's different, everything's new, I'm free. In other words, I'm not obligated or held to anything, I can do whatever I please. And he says, no, God's called you to something. Embrace it and walk in it. Particularly embrace marriage, which we look at this week again. If you're single, you will have things to say about singleness coming up later in the chapter. But let me encourage you, single or married, track with this. Because there are things here about God that you see. And because you form, if you're single, if you're single for your whole life, you still form part of a church culture that teaches and expresses a, a theology of marriage. And you need to be expressing and teaching and explaining and supporting a proper theology of marriage, even if you yourself never get married, for the sake of helping your brothers and sisters who are. So whether you're single or married, this, this is for you. And he's speaking, obviously, though, particularly to married people, because that's who Paul's talking to. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 16. To the married I give this charge. 
not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Wife, how do you know whether you will save your husband? Husband, how do you know whether you will save your wife? The word of the Lord. This passage is a continuation from last week where in verse 8, Paul made a comment to the unmarried and to the widows. And he tells them that, that if God were to give you the gift of singleness, it would be good to stay that way. It's, there's, there's a strategic usefulness to it, as he'll elaborate on later in the chapter. Maybe he gives you that gift. I encourage you then, be like me and stay that way. However, he then turns his attention to the married among us. That's where he, he moves in 10 and following. So let me encourage all of us then to track with this, as as I said already. He has something here for every single one of us. Logistic problem. (laughs) So he comes in verse 10 and says, I have something to say to the married people. Not I, but the Lord. And he's clarifying something here. These are the words of of Jesus himself, the Lord. Now, down in verse 12, he clarifies, he switches it, I, not the Lord, saying, these then are my words, but both of them are the words of Scripture. So we, we are not to discount one or give more weight to the other. He's just saying, I don't want to take credit for this particular thing that Jesus said, referring to some comments made in the Gospels. Jesus said in the Gospels, he gave this charge and, and let's be clear about it. a charge. It's an expectation, a requirement. So though it says later you should, sometimes we read shoulds as along the lines of it would be nice if you could. You really should do this. Jesus is not saying, Paul is not referring to Jesus as saying, you should not divorce, but if you If you can't handle that, then at least don't marry somebody else. It's a charge. He means don't do this. But if you sin in this way, don't compound the sin by marrying somebody else. Paul's alluding to what Jesus said there in the Gospels. We talked about this when I preached in Deuteronomy 24. It involves sexual immorality in the Gospels. And the reason you don't want to compound this is that Jesus starts talking about adultery and sexual immorality and how sin piles on top of sin. So don't multiply things. That's what Jesus is getting at. 
Paul brings it up here because he wants to, to start with that and then expand beyond it. Jesus taught, don't divorce. And now I have something else to add in, verse 12. To the rest I say, everybody else, that if a brother or a sister, he says very carefully the same thing, vice versa, if a brother or a sister has an unbelieving spouse, now what do you do? In Paul's day, the gospel is spread far and wide and as, as it goes into city after city after city, invariably it comes to people who are already married and people come to faith at different paces. And so everywhere he goes, Corinth no exception, he runs into people where one spouse has come to faith and the other one hasn't. What do you do? How do you handle this? Should one divorce or not? He had taught, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 points this out, so he'd probably taught it in Corinth already, that we should not be unequally yoked. We shouldn't have a Christian married to a non-Christian. So perhaps, Paul, what that means is, I should divorce this person? And he says, no. If you're married, God has assigned to you marriage. That's the place He has put you. And He intends for you to embrace it. To, to hold fast to the spouse. So if this person consents, stay married. And then he goes on to weave together more of the charge and some of the reason. Explains in verse 14 why that would be. The issue of holiness is at stake. There's some benefit, which we'll elaborate on later. There's some benefit that comes to the unbelieving spouse because the believer stays. There's some benefit to any children in the family because the unbeliever stays. It's a good reason for you to stay if that person consents. However, it might not be that way. Here's a concession. Just like in the previous section where he gives the general command and then gives the concession... Engage in frequent intimacy unless perhaps for a little bit of time, for a particular reason, you don't, but then come back. Same structure here. The general command with the exception. Unless the unbeliever, him or herself, says, no, you come to faith, I don't want any part to do with that. I'm leaving. And if that's the case, let him go. You're no longer bound, or the ESV says enslaved. There's no longer the, the marriage bond. It's broken. Jesus made an exception. Paul just briefly alludes to Jesus. Jesus made an exception. What breaks the marriage bond? Jesus said one thing, sexual immorality. Paul adds in a second thing, a very specific thing, which we'll talk more about. And if that happens, then it's broken. You're no longer bound. That's the exception. And then the last sentence of verse 15 kind of brings us back out of the exception to the main argument. And if you have the NAS, you'll notice there's the word but in there. But God has called you to peace. Some translations have left that word out in an attempt to make it more readable. But it's there. And the point is he's coming back. So catch the flow. If you have an unbelieving spouse who agrees to stay married to you, you should stay married to that person. However, that, that person may not want that. They, they may break the, the marriage bond. Okay, but God has called you to peace. 
We are not breakers. We are healers and menders. And we hold things together. We restore. But how do you know? It's just possible that your union with this person will lead to this person's salvation. Verse 16. Husband or wife, either way. He comes back to the idea of you together and a a great hope in it. That's the passage. Talking about an aspect of marriage. Talking about a particular type of marriage. What we're going to do is we're going to work into the specifics here and then kind of generalize them to apply to all of us. I'm going to make two observations from the passage. And tie them together at the end. The first observation is drawn from the charge issued by Jesus and by Paul. When God calls us to marriage, He calls us to stay married in peace. When God calls us to marriage, He calls us to stay married in peace. That's the repeated clear emphasis. Ten, a wife should not separate. Eleven, a husband should not divorce. Twelve and thirteen, same thing. The spouse consents, you stay. And just to be clear, that when he says to the the wife in verse 10, should not separate, that's divorce. And we can tell because if you look at the very next verse where he puts a little parenthetical comment in there, but if she does, she should remain unmarried. That separation makes her unmarried. Which is why the parallel statement says, husband, don't divorce your wife. So we're not talking about separation in modern American terminology. I think there are good reasons for separation sometimes in our situation today, but that's not what we're talking about here. So when you read the word separate in here, it's talking about divorce. And he says... Don't. That's, that's the clear point. Now, there's obviously an exception. We'll come to that later. But God wants us to stay married, and He wants us to want to stay married. He's always after our hearts. He does not want you married angry. Outwardly right with a heart far from Him. I want you to stay married and want you to want to stay married. Now, in Corinth, obviously the issue is a mixed marriage across religious lines. Not racially mixed, religiously mixed. The gospel's come to town. Somebody's come to faith, one spouse or the other. What do you do in marriage there? So we're, we're going to talk about that instance in specifics because there are some of us in this congregation exactly right there. There are a number of folks here who, who are a regular part of the congregation or who have contact with us who are, who are in this sort of a marriage. And as the gospel spreads, that may, we pray, it will continue to happen. The people will come to faith. Adults married will come to faith. And maybe God won't save both of them at the same time. So, so this, this is the reality for some of us and, and maybe for more of us. So we'll talk about that specifically, and then we'll expand it a little bit. This is not a married, a Christian married to 
someone that we think isn't a Christian. I sometimes hear people approach this passage by saying, well, um, my husband acts like a non-Christian. So it must be here, right? No. Uh, We don't see enough of the fruit of the Spirit in this woman's life to, to believe that she actually is a Christian, so he must be here, right? No. Remember the context. This is a Christian who has a spouse who says, I want nothing to do with that. Religious difference is the issue. We are a a professing non-Christian and a professing Christian. I'm being kind of very detailed about this because it will become important in a moment. A professing non-Christian and a professing Christian. If that's you, what do you do? Well, Paul says, you stay married. That's perhaps surprising. Because it might seem, if you were to flip over to 2 Corinthians 6 and read through there, it might seem, as Paul talks about, but what does good have to do with with evil? What does darkness have to do with light? What does a Christian have to do with a non-Christian? That we're together, this is wrong, we should break this apart. And he says, no, you shouldn't actually. Because what we're bumping into here is the covenant of marriage. And because of what God has made the covenant of marriage to be, a pointer at something, which we've talked about several times. The covenant of marriage is pointing at the covenant. It's intended to, not perfectly because you've got two sinful people here, but it's intended to be pointing at what it is like for for Christ the bridegroom to be in covenant with His bride. It's pointing at that. And so God makes that covenant extremely strong. So strong there are only two specific ways that it can be broken. Jesus mentioned one, sexual morality, and the other one's here coming up. But apart from those two things, there is a covenant here that is extremely strong. Far more than any business deal, far more than friendship, far more than blood relationship. This covenant of marriage is tight and close. So don't break it if your spouse consents to stay with you. Even though he's a non-believer, even though she's a non-believer, if she consents to stay, stay in peace. Perhaps the spouse won't. And if that's the case, okay. But our bias needs to be stay and stay in peace. Stay blessing. Stay gracious. Stay happy. Stay hopeful. Stay prayerful. Stay gentle. Stay kind. Don't stay anger, angry and bitter and resentful and nagging. Stay in peace. That's what God's called you to be as a Christian. So some are are here exactly, and it's pretty clear what what the instruction is to you, but how does it apply to the rest of us? Well, if this marriage situation right here is not to be broken, and this is the one exception that's mentioned, where the rest of us are left 
is with all the other instruction of this chapter and all the other instruction of the Bible, verse 17, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. If a marriage between a non-Christian and a Christian is that tight, what about all the rest of us who are married to Christians? Stay married. It, as, as I say this, I have two things going on in my mind. One, I feel like I'm saying something that is so blatantly obvious. It's like I'm saying, take a breath right now. Take a breath right now. Take a breath right now. And I'm teaching you this? Shouldn't this just happen? Isn't it blatant and obvious? I feel like I'm wasting all of our time. And then the other half of me says, oh, no, you're not, because tons of people who sit in churches constantly don't think like this at all. Shockingly. This is blatant and obvious, and I'm wasting our time even bothering to talk about it, except for the fact that nobody agrees with it. Oh. Or maybe everybody agrees with it until it actually becomes hard. And then we find reasons to qualify and ways to get around it. There just aren't any, though. Even in this particular case, he does not say, stay with your spouse if the person becomes a believer. He doesn't say, stay with your spouse if the person treats you well. Stay with the spouse if the spouse makes you happy. Stay with them if they encourage you. Stay with them if they're good. None of that. Stay. The only qualifier, if they agree. So stay. Now let me say very clearly. If you're in a marriage that in some way you find, and I'm not going to at this point quibble over definitions here, but in some way you find to be abusive, we have to acknowledge that there's no way I can deal with all those details right here in this format. So I plead with you, come talk to me about that. And we'll get into the specifics. Bring those things out. Talk about them. I am well aware all kinds of nasty, evil stuff happens in marriage. The Bible is well aware. Think of the context the Bible was written in. And the Bible talks about suffering and hardship, but knows what it's talking about. I'm aware of those things. I can't address all of them right now. But it is important to note that none of those things are given as exceptions anywhere in the Scripture. There are evil and wicked things done in marriage that can lead to imprisonment that do not break the marriage bond. It is so strong. Do you realize that? That's odd for us. Because we think, surely this is a bad person, an evil person, a criminal. A... Yes. Yes, yes, uh-huh. And married to you. Because the marriage bond is not broken by 
a whole litany of wickedness. Wickedness. The Bible talks about how to deal with that. We can, we can find a lot of wisdom and we can, we can work on that if you come and talk to me and we can address some of those things. But we are called, brothers and sisters, we are called, if you are married, then you know that God has called you to marriage by virtue of the fact that you are married. And what He means then for you is to stay married even if it's hard. Now, it's possible that you might have a non-Christian spouse who professes to be a non-Christian and does not want anything to do with your Christianity and therefore leaves you. And if that specific thing applies to your life, okay, you're not bound by that. Great. That's not many of us. He calls us, if you're married, He calls you to stay married in peace. Wanting to be married. Which I know for, for some of you, and, and probably for all of us, if you can think about this for a second, that sounds impossible. As you look at your particular marriage, or the marriage of your, your sister, or the marriage of your next door neighbor, sounds impossible. How in the world, where, where on earth can you find the, the thing you need in here to stay in this in peace. Sorrowful but ever rejoicing. But well, you can't find it anywhere on earth. And you're not supposed to. This is an effect of what the gospel is meant to be for you, Christian. Where you find a spouse who does not love you like she should or like he should. You do have a spouse who loves you perfectly. As Romans 5 says, He has come and made peace with you. And therefore the love of God is poured into your heart by the Holy Spirit given to you. Live off of that. That's where you find the thing you need in here to stay in this mess. The love of God poured into your heart by the Spirit of God. Given to you as a gift when He saved you. And He does not mean for you to take the Spirit of God with the love of God and set it over here and find what you need in your spouse. You can't and you won't. It's not there. But if you find it here and draw it from Him and it fills you, you can live. He means for us to do the impossible, but with God all things are possible. He means for us to live married in peace and in joy as blessers and helpers and comforters and givers, even when it's hard. And He gives His Spirit, the love of God, to empower it. If He calls you to marriage, He means you to stay in it. And there's a reason for that. There are a number of reasons. There's one particular in this text, which leads to the second point. The second observation is, is an answer to the question, why? And 
I think that if we will understand this and, and work it through and internalize it, there will be a, a little process of probably exposure and conviction and change and blessing. A little process there will happen in you, I, I think, if you will work through this reason. So why stay? And the reason he gives it, and I'll summarize it like this, God carries out good, sanctifying purposes in marriage, even in the hard ones. God carries out good, sanctifying purposes in marriage, even in the hard ones, and perhaps we could say especially in the hard ones or in the hard times in marriage. Verse 14 why can't a Christian divorce a spouse who consents to say, well, because we're, you know, we're called to peace, because the marriage bond is there, all those things, but the specific things stated in verse 14, for, there's a reason there, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and vice versa. Wife because of the husband. And in fact, the kids too. The very end of the verse says, they are holy. If, if a divorce happened, otherwise they, they would be unclean if a divorce happened. But as it is, you stay there, the spouse is made holy, and the kids are holy also. What does that mean? Well, it, what it doesn't mean is that the spouse is, is holy in a sense of perfect, spotless, clean before God. The, the spouse is still called an unbeliever. And verse 16 holds out the possibility, the hope that this person would be saved. That's still necessary. There isn't, there isn't any spouse, there aren't any kids who are Christians because one of their parents is or, or their spouse is. Your question, kids, your question to you is do you believe? Not does mom, not does dad. Spouse, it's about you and your belief, not husbands, not wives. Yours. Do you trust Christ alone? So it talks about holy here. It does not mean that. Well, what does it mean? Well, notice that when he describes the kids, he, he switches from holy to unclean. And Paul tips his hand there, what he's thinking about. Unclean is an Old Testament term. We've seen a number of times in these previous chapters where Paul is, is speaking to the church with the book of Deuteronomy on his head. We've seen that at least three times already. And here he's got another one. Paul constantly speaks to the church informed by the Old Testament. Here's, a, here's an example of this as well. You've got two categories in the Old Testament, clean and unclean. Holy, set apart, sanctified. These words mean they're from the similar roots as opposed to common and ordinary, unclean, profane in, in the, the technical sense. So spouse, what he's saying, spouse, when you stay, you have the effect on your family of setting them aside into the clean category, the holy category. Why is that important? If you look at the Old Testament, where does God live and where does God work? In Egypt or in Israel? 
clearly, well, God's everywhere in the whole world, of course, but clearly the, the holy, the people, the covenant community is where is God's realm. The other out there is not. The set apart, the distinct for Him, that's where God lives and God works uniquely, specially. So spouse, you stay in your family and you have the effect, it says, of making your spouse holy. And the kids too. You pull them over here to a place where God lives and God works. Different than He does at the neighbor's house. He does that primarily as He works through you, using you as light and using you as salt. Salt that has a preserving effect and also has a thirst-creating effect. Salt preserves meat. Salt on the tongue makes somebody thirsty and they have to have a drink. Light illumines the truth. When Jesus used those analogies, He talked about how it shows your good works show God's goodness and glory. As you, as God works in you, in the midst of them, it has an effect of drawing them towards someone. Your prayers, your standards, your lifestyle, your attitude, your hopefulness in the midst of depressing situations, your, your grace in the midst of offense, your peace in the midst of conflict. It draws them to something. It doesn't automatically draw them to something. Your presence might repel them. He calls you to stay married in peace. If you stay married in angst, you should be aware. You've, heard, you've probably heard this phrase. Sometimes the only Bible anybody will ever read is you. And what you tell them, Christians are angry and cranky and don't like you. Will that draw somebody to God? This is obviously written to a context where you've got an unbelieving spouse or unbelieving kids. But I hope you see how the same thing crosses over into, into uh, Christians married to Christians or Christian kids in a Christian family. If you're a spouse in a family with everybody's a believer, the same thing still applies. You have an effect on your spouse, on your kids, a sanctifying effect. Even if so-and-so is not walking with God for this decade or for this week, as you respond to that person, you have an effect of drawing him or drawing her back to Christ, drawing your kids to Him. The problem is, Often, we don't want to do that. Because what I'm talking about there 
is not pleasing to me. And fundamentally, very often, we come to marriage with the perspective that this is God's gift to me to make me happy. And here's a situation, whether it be an unbelieving spouse or believing spouse, that is not making me happy and hasn't made me happy for quite a while. And you begin to think, as Christians say, doesn't God love me and wouldn't God want something better for me? That resonates with a soul that's upset. It's looking for comfort and happiness here in this relationship. It isn't finding it. An interesting thing happens at that point. You see, God calling me to stay, I read verse 14, I say, the spouse has a sanctifying effect on a spouse, on kids. You can pull them over here. How much suffering do I want to go through for that? I'm about, I'm about maxed out. I'm done. And at that point, what happens is you realize, oh, this is suddenly God's sanctifying effect on me. So, God accomplishing good, sanctifying purposes in marriage is not just about through me to them. It's about me. Because what just happened was that what was exposed in me is that I'm not fundamentally eager and excited about living for the good of this other person, these other people, and for the glory of God in their lives. I'm fundamentally most excited about living for myself. And this marriage isn't doing it for me anymore. I begin to think about leaving. Maybe I don't because it would be socially unacceptable, but I begin to think about leaving. And right there, if you'll notice it, you've just been exposed. What you really love, what really drives you, just showed itself. Do you see that? That's important to see because every single one of us faces this. When your spouse does something, it doesn't matter if they're a Christian or not, when your spouse does something that irritates you and you begin to think, I deserve better than this. This is wrong. I shouldn't have. Right there you've been exposed. What God means for you to think is a place for me to be a conduit of grace. Ah. A place for me to bless. Wonderful. That would be living, laying myself down. Seeking to bless and honor God by connecting this person to the one who is the hope of their heart. I don't go there at all, though. I don't go there at all. I get angry. And I'm exposed. Please see that. It is every one of our marriages. And when you see that, at that point you realize how good of God to assign to me the gift of marriage for my holiness. More than for my temporary happiness. To assign to me marriage that will change me. 
and make me more like Him, which is eternally good for me. All the troubles and all the pains in your marriage are God's grace to you. Even if they're criminal. Even if they're criminal and should involve you pursuing some resolution in in a court system even. Even in those cases, it is still God's grace to you that He's working to transform you and to work out of you self-focus, which comes to every one of us naturally. This is hard. Impossible. Unless, unless your, your mind and your heart is fundamentally riveted on the one marriage is about. Christ. It always, all comes back to Him. Always. And if and when it comes back to Him, you actually can live in this life. Now, now Paul was never married, but when Paul talks about, I've mentioned already, sorrowing but ever rejoicing, he gets sorrow. He gets it. When in, in chapter 4, when he talks about, think of these words, Paul means them, not in a marriage context, but translate them into a marriage context. Same words would apply. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become, and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. If we're honest, there are spouses who treat one another just like that. Paul says, I've lived that. I have sorrowed in that. I have been beaten and left for dead. And I walk around rejoicing, even while sorrowing. He sings in prison. Insane. Where on earth does he find such strength? Not on earth. You won't find it on earth either. But you can find it where He found it. In Christ. Join to Him who makes peace with God for you and then gives you His Spirit to pour His love into your heart. Live off of that. Brothers and sisters, live off of that. You can rejoice in the midst of every sorrow, in the midst of hard marriages. And teaching you that and working out of you sin is God's gracious, sanctifying work on you in marriage, even the hard ones. Especially the hard ones. He loves you profoundly. And to show that to you, some of us, He's married off to each other. 
to display his love and to draw us to him. So thank him and run to him and, and sit before him. I think about what to do with this specifically. If you're, if you're in a, a marriage situation, a long-term marriage or a marriage situation that is painful and hard and trying, and again, I'm saying if there are things that you would regard as abusive, come and talk to me about that to get specific. But for the rest of us, you have to live in your Bible. You have to live close to and before God's face. And I would recommend the Psalms especially. You will find all of the emotions in the Psalms. All of them. The whole gamut. And you will find Him going back to God. God, my exceeding joy. Psalm 45. God who welcomes me into His sanctuary and there sets out a table and feasts with me. You will find Him if you live before Him in the Scriptures. You, you have to. He meets us through His Word by His Spirit in the quiet times. So that then you can walk out in the kitchen and interact with a spouse who right now is hard. Blessing them in peace, not lashing out in anger. If God calls you to marriage, He means for you to stay married in and under His sanctifying, loving work in you and through you. So trust Him. Trust Him and stay married. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.